Hello and welcome back to the RHS Gardening Podcast. Every fortnight we bring you a mixture of features and discussions exploring every aspect of gardening. Container ideas, growing your own fruit and vegetables, plant care, pest control and garden design. Plus expert seasonal advice on what you should be doing in your garden right now. I'm Tony Dickerson, one of the RHS's team of horticultural advisors. Coming up in this April edition, we visit the European Orchid Show and Conference in London and, as always, the latest news on RHS gardening events across the UK. But first, questions the RHS advice team are often asked by those just getting interested in gardening are, what equipment and tools do I need to get started? And also, what are the key gardening skills I need to master my garden? While there is no definitive list, there is some agreement amongst gardeners about some essential skills and some essential pieces of equipment that make gardening easier, more pleasurable and which produce better results. So over the next few months, our podcast is going to guide you through what our experts think should be in every gardener's shed. With so much variety in shops, and especially at this time of year, it's easy to be overwhelmed by choice and get carried away buying too many gadgets. All of us have done it. So whether you've been gardening for two weeks or 20 years, it's a healthy exercise to take stock of what's in your garden shed and pair it back to the real essentials. Good quality equipment suited to your needs. So let's join Matthew Pottage, Deputy Curator of RHS Garden Wisley in Surrey, and Jenny Bowden, my colleague from the RHS Gardening Advice Team, for a discussion of the basics. Hello there, Matthew. Hi there, Hi. Jenny. Now, this issue of gardening tools, when, you, when you're starting off, it is an absolute minefield. And I'm, I'm trying to think back to when I started gardening, and, and probably I imagine there was a potting shed full of goodies when I actually started out, so I, I didn't have to go out to the shops and decide what to buy. But now the range is immense. We've got the internet selling you uh, all sorts of gadgets that sometimes perhaps we just don't need. How do we go back to the basics? It is amazing, isn't it? You go to the garden centre and you're absolutely overwhelmed and there's a tool for everything. And I think to just to pair it right back and think basics, think where to start. If you're venturing out into your garden, you know, taking it really back to the first steps, you don't want to slice your hands apart. So a decent pair of gloves, I always think. And then I can't seem to get anywhere without some kind of cutting tool because chances are you're going to need to prune something, cut something back. And then the other thing, there's always weeds. There's always weeds in the garden. So how on earth do you weed effectively? And I think, you know, looking at how you look after yourself, how you prune things and get rid of weeds, for me, are three of the most basic things before we start going with all our, you know, apple pickers and long handle <laughs> this yeah, and uh, telescopic that. Exactly. OK, so starting off with these, um, with the gloves. So you mentioned safety was one aspect of having gloves, uh, obviously safety from cutting yourself, but also just um, being safe from, from compost and infections, uh, if you've got any cuts, etc., etc. And so that could actually lead to having several pairs of gloves. Um, it does, and, hit, yeah, and straight away <laughs> you start going down the road of which gloves for what job. I mean, I'm a fan of being able to feel what I'm doing, especially if I'm weeding. Yeah. Uh, so a nice, you know, I've even actually weeded at my parents' house before in marigolds, the yeah, washing absolutely. up gloves, because yeah. you want to keep your hands dry, you need to feel what you're doing, and a great big thick pair of gloves, if you're weeding on heavy soil, you end up covered and caked in mud. And it's like this, you know, you're collecting soil as you go along. So I really favour a good thin pair of gloves. They can be cheap and cheerful, but preferably with some kind of rubber or plastic outer lining so you're not wet. There's there's a whole range of gloves now in the garden centres which do exactly that. So they're rubberised, but but the back of the hand is fabric. That's right. So it still breathes. That's right, yeah. And And they're very easy, easy to get hold of. 
They are. They're great. And you certainly won't go near a monkey puzzle tree or a pyracanther or something with them. <laughs> it is not. all about weeding. Uh, but then that's when I think the, the thicker, more robust pair comes in for, for pruning. The good thing about the weedingy type ones is that you can bung them in the washing machine. Um, but with the, with the thicker types, actually there, there, is, there is a fur-lined rubbery one that I Sounds use for luxurious. the winter time. Do you They're go skiing black. in them as well? They're fur-lined, you probably could. Uh, good for washing the car. Um, <laughs> but, but they're very good for winter, but they've got that same rubberized outside. Um, I don't know how you feel about leather gloves. I mean, obviously they're very safe pruning in. How yeah. do you feel? Yeah, we do actually use some of the leather, actually fleece-lined ones at Weasley. And, you know, joking aside, they are good. And, you know, I actually suffer with really poor circulation. And if you're doing a winter job of, you know, you're pruning a wisteria, you're pruning a fruit tree, or your roses you know you're not moving around a lot and keeping comfortable is important and keeping warm and, and your your fingers kind of in action so actually those fleece line ones i do recommend we use a lot of them at Weasley. and they're leather are they they are yeah, yeah. okay yeah. so that's given us a few a few uh, nice yeah. ideas for the for the gloves and the protection i think if you find your say you're working with a lot of bristly plants something like a gorse so again i mentioned pyracantha you often have them wall trained or as hedges you can get those thicker gloves as like a gauntlet type and they protect your wrists and it's amazing how when you're working say your jacket the the arms pull up your wrists are exposed and you can still get cut and prickled and these are the kind of things they are you know they're not cheap as chips but once you've got them they're going to last you a while uh, and I think you'll be you know you'll be pleased of the investment. Perfect. Yeah, the thing that I like most about the thinner ones is that you can put them in the washing machine. And that's, I suppose that's why I'm asking about whether you use leather gloves, because once they get wet, they, they turn into uh, wet and then dry out with mud on them. They turn into this sort of claw shape <laughs> and, that, and that's how they remain. And you feel like, oh, I'm just going to have to throw them away. They can't go in the machine. And that's the end of that, which is why I ask you about the leather, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, what I do and what a lot of our gardeners do at work, we because we don't have washing machine facilities you know, for all the stuff, they get dried out, normally on the tops of radiators and heaters in the mess room. Yes, they do go a bit cardboardy, but you stick your hands in the next day, rub them together firmly, give them a good bash, a load of dust comes <laughs> off them, and you know they're back into action again. Perfect. And we find a lot of our full-time gardeners will keep the same pair of gloves three to six months, and that's full-time everyday use. So, I mean, that is very good when you think someone may typically do a couple hours gardening on a Sunday or, you know... A full day. Oh, thanks for that, Matt. I think that's really enlightening as to how long gloves should, should actually last people, and that's full time use. Thanks for that. Okay, Matt, so secateurs, I think, are really top on the list. Uh, you're going out in the springtime looking at rather overgrown things. What are we going to do about it? Secateurs, big topic, and certainly I think every different gardener would probably argue slightly different. The most popular type of secateurs that we use among our gardeners at Wisley are the bypass types instead of the anvil. And the bypass, you know, a good, well-maintained, sharp pair of bypass secateurs where the blades pass by one another and give you such a clean cut without tearing the bark. We use those for a whole host of pruning. It's normally the Felcos, number two, that's, that's most selected. We do give the gardeners options, or if they're passionate about their own brand, of course they can use that. But the, one of the main things here is maintaining them, sharpening the blade. If you're pruning something you think is diseased or dying for whatever reason, you know, spray them over with disinfectant when you've finished. Uh, but I cannot stress enough the importance of keeping a good sharp blade you know yeah. pruning is the most unsatisfactory job if you're leaving snags and tears behind and if you were to choose the uh, the make that is used 
in the garden, which is the Felcos. Uh, the number number two is one of the most widely bought ones, um, and you you can actually for, for all of the range you can actually send them away to be sharpened and serviced if you, you want can. to. It's a service that's offered, which makes it really hassle-free, uh, and that's on on their website. You can also get handles which one of one of the two handles rotates slightly, which is meant to cause less stress on your wrist. That's right. And really, in general, secateurs are for cutting things, what, around what, half an inch or an inch? Yeah, yeah. Uh, what uh, would you say you'd go up to for secateur use? Pencil thickness to small marker pen kind of thickness, if yeah, I'm being really, really basic here. Uh, you know, if you're struggling and you're putting stress on your wrist, chances are you need a small folding saw it's about right tool for the right job and it's for, you know if you're going pruning i look, love to have like the double holster on my belt with secateurs and folding saw and then you can easily switch between the two if you know your saw is buried somewhere in the shed chances are you're going to start trying to go a bit too big for your secateurs. I usually find um, that my uh, secateurs end up on a compost heap, but luckily they have red handles, so I need <laughs> one of those holsters as well. Yeah, the holsters are brilliant. Have it on your belt. Everything's easily accessible. OK, I suppose the reason that I was asking about the thickness of branch that you might be, the, the ultimate thickness of branch that you might be cutting with secateurs is because I'm wondering at which point it goes on to a new tool, and those new tools could be loppers or a pruning saw. So how would you decide whether to use a lopper or a pruning saw, do you think? Okay, probably another controversial one here. I must say I'm not a massive fan of loppers. We do have loppers at Wisley. What we normally use them for is chopping up brash when we've taken off branches or we've pruned a shrub. Use the loppers just to chop away, fill the trailer. What I don't like so much about loppers is a lack of precision. A nice little sharp folding pruning saw, you can really get into, you know, wherever you're going to prune, look at the branch color or look at the nodes that you're pruning to, really precise. With the loppers, you're kind of, you're getting in there, you're trying to get your arms open to extend the handles, you think you're somewhere near it, but you can't get close because you've got half a meter of handle in front of you, and then crank it closed. If they're not quite sharp enough, they always make a tear or they bounce along the stem. Absolutely. I just yep. don't like that lack of control and that guarantee of getting a really good cut. And then, or more often than not, the branch comes and hits you on the head if you haven't planned yeah, things properly. Exactly, um, there's always that little surprise. Do you think we ought to identify exactly what loppers are? I think we maybe should. I always say they look like a giant pair of secateurs, they're long handles, surprisingly small blades at the end, and sometimes they're telescopic handles as well, so you can extend them. And they would be bypass as well, or would they be the anvil you can type? have both. I mean, for me, my worst nightmare is anvil loppers. If I see those, I'd run a mile. I wouldn't try and prune anything with them. And, you know, again, there's nothing more unsatisfactory than doing a terrible job and torn bark, rubbish pruning cuts. You know, there's no excuse for it. It's, it's bad news. You can find more tips and advice and video guides to seasonal tasks on the gardening pages of the RHS website. That's rhs.org.uk forward slash advice. I'm Tony Dickerson, and you're listening to the RHS Gardening Podcast. So, what are some of the other key jobs for gardeners in April? Hello, I'm Gareth Dibley from Dibley's Nurseries. We're a specialist in Streptocarpus, which is a flowering house plant. Uh, in April, it's good to uh, pot your plants on if they haven't already been potted on. It gets them going and gets them to flower quicker. Uh, you want to uh, start feeding them if you're not potting them on. And don't overdo the watering, but uh, make sure that they're just moist now. Uh, they should be coming into flower in the next month or two. So uh, uh, when they are uh, coming into flower, 
Um, we want a good light to get them into flower, but uh, don't overdo it. So by, by about May, make sure they're not in the full midday sun. Um, they should keep flowering right through to the autumn, if you get the right position correct. Good morning, the name's uh, Colin Moat from uh, Pineview Plants. Uh, talking about uh, plants for the woodland shade and those shady corners and pots, hedges, that type of area. Uh, really good plants for this time of year will be epimediums, uh, things like Wardiensi, which is a very strong, robust growing uh, epimedium. Good idea to, uh, if, if you haven't done it already, to prune the leaves off all your epimediums so that you can now get the flower heads bursting through the ground and uh, providing you with a bishop hat type flower. You then will benefit later on towards the end of May, you'll get the foliage come through. Things uh, like Fargesii and a lot of the new uh, epimedium introductions give you a great deal of foliage interest, uh, where the leaves, which are pinnate and quite impressive in themselves, have edges of red and that will last you through the summer. This is Rosie Hardy, Hardy Scottish Garden Plants. Uh, my tip for this time of year is that you should go out into your garden and look at your penstemon plants and make sure that you have cut them down to about two to three inches from ground level. That's where the new growth is coming from. You don't want to be leaving all the old growth there. However, you've got to remember if they are heterophyllous types, then they are more shrubby and you just need to cut back to where there are new shoots to make the plants tidy. Now last week at the RHS Horticultural Halls in London, people from all over the world enjoyed the European Orchid Show and Conference. Many orchids are relatively easy to grow and with the right care will give a long-lasting flower display. So how do you ensure you care for them properly? We caught up with renowned orchid grower Lawrence Hobbs of Hobbs Orchids to get some expert advice. Been an orchid grower for 34 years. If you want to talk about the main person on the block which is really phalaenopsis which is the moth orchid really they're the things that are not idiot proof but if you follow a few rules you can get fantastic results number one do not stand your plant in water for any great length of time um, watering once every seven to ten days if you have a clear pot the plants in a clear pot look at the roots if they're white they're dry if they're green they're wet and have a look at them after 10 days and then give them a soaking. You can either dunk them in some water for five, 10 minutes, or you can water through the pot. Where you keep them in the house is interesting. You, in winter, no problem on the south facing window. A lot of people keep them west, east, or north facing. Have to be careful north facing in winter in case it gets cold. Do not keep it on a windowsill and close the curtains around it because it'll probably freeze. Uh, plenty of people that's happened to. But you want to keep it in a place where the light's good, diffuse, but not bright and burning. So that will cause problems. At feeding, if you want to give them a feed now and again, you know, once a month, give them half strength feed. It's not essential. The one thing is to always, the question I always get asked is, my plant's not very well, the leaves don't look very well, I'll give it a feed, it'll rescue it. That will not rescue your orchid, it will do it no good at all. Um, and flowering, they will flower for months and months and months. If you're going to buy your first orchid, make sure you've got plenty of buds. And like I said, the roots are really good, Nick. Leaves are in good, good condition. Um, but when the flowers finish, 
the key is I don't cut the flower stems off. Some people do, but I don't cut the flower stems off with the hope that they will produce branches from the stems and extra buds will come and you'll get another flush. I've known people flowering constantly for four, five, six years. You worry about repotting. A lot of people worry about repotting their plants. Really, they're hands-off, apart from watering them once every seven to ten days. Clean the plant regularly if you can with some slightly soapy water. Just get the dust off it and any mess on it. Um, as far as potting goes, we usually say probably every two or three years. And be careful what sort of mix you use. Most people these days use a bark-based mix. We sell the mix. And we always say be very careful where you get the mix from because sometimes the mix is like dust and it just isn't any good. You want some chunky bark. These plants, these Phalaenopsis, are like a lot of orchids you see around. They grow on trees. I mean, they're not native to this country, obviously. They're exotic. They come from Southeast Asia. They grow on trees. They grow in so-called rainforests, where it does rain, but not all the time. But there's a lot of certain amount of humidity. You don't need that humidity in-house. But what you do need is to make sure your plants aren't sitting around drowning. Um, and that's where the mix comes into to play. Use a good mix. Probably every three years, give it a repot. Be firm when you repot so they don't wobble about. Um, don't want it, a wobbly plant won't establish well and I often think it's a good thing to put them back into clear pots because you can see the roots it's not essential they can be at times expensive that's why it's worth going to an orchid grower because there aren't many of us left in this country but we do have clear pots at a reasonable price you go to garden centres they're a horrendous price but again if you don't use a clear pot it's not absolutely essential once you think going past a spreading your wings to other orchids you have to be a bit careful and you have to realize that phalaenopsis can be in flower for if you're successful for two or three years maybe constantly the other orchids they are definitely a once a year flowering and they they may need repotting every year or maybe every other year so it's worth getting on the internet finding where your local nursery is even the rhs because i know you know a lot about plants get on there google the rhs i'm sure there's good advice on the site about how to grow phalaenopsis and grow other orchids without any problems at all i'll come to a simple thing sunburn if you put it on a sunny spot you'll find sunburn is very similar to the burn you get on your skin you'll get a white patch on it and then a brown it'll start going brown on an area where if the sun's come through and brown the leaves and the leaf will start going yellow and you can chop it off it's not terminal sunburn if you cook them it can be terminal but a bit of sunburn's not the end of the world as far as there's two things overwatering and underwatering which are the two crucial things when it comes to orchids because people are never sure quite how much to water their orchid and how often to water their orchid if you look in the pot if the roots are white then the roots are in good nick there's nothing wrong it's dry if they're green they're in good nick they're just moist if they're brown and accompanied with the leaves looking slightly a little bit worse for there a little bit not turgid flaccid that is a sign that the plant's been overwatered. Now, that's not always terminal. What can occur is they might produce aerial roots. Now, if they produce those aerial roots, you can use the, the white roots that come out of the top of the plant, and everyone will have them with their plant. Uh, you know, the Phalaenopsis produce them by the bucket load, and they'll be out there like fingers out the top of the plant. And what you can do with those, keep those roots. Do not be tempted to chop them all off. You can trim some back, but do not be tempted to chop them off because they might be your saviour. You can use them, whether they survive in the pot, but they will give the plant a boost 
if they've lost their roots. Cold. Cold is one of those things I've seen a lot lately because people don't realise that they put their plant on a windowsill, they close the curtains and, they, and, and, and it's a cold night, even they've got double glazing and it gets cold. And often the plant will show this sort of, it's a difficult description, they might go a bit clear, the, the, the leaves, they might be slightly browny and sometimes watery, but it will show a sign of not looking the nice bright green it was beige, it was sort of go that sort of funny sort of brownie colour. And I saw a, bloke, a guy sent me a photograph uh, through my website and there it was. And I, I tried to tell him it's cold and he said, no, no, it's never called cold, but you could just see the symptoms and the leaves would drop off. Burning, hot and cold symptoms sometimes can be very similar. In the house, you don't often have heat problems. Cold you can. Conservatories, one thing definitely to say, really important, if someone's really tempted to use their conservatory to grow orchids in they've got it's all intents and purposes it's a greenhouse you're creating a greenhouse in a a, 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 you need to create a greenhouse conditions for your conservatory so you need shading especially if it's a south-facing greenhouse otherwise they'll just cook and you need heating in winter if you've got one that abuts that goes east or west then generally speaking you can be pretty happy that your temperature can be all right as long as you can make sure your minimum temperatures are below probably i would say 14 from phalaenopsis we as a group as societies as commercial nurseries got to put the word out to know that there are shows in places because people they're hungry if they've got these plants they want to move on and they want the advice the more people that grow the better it's got to be good Lawrence Hobbs there from Lawrence Hobbs Orchids in West Sussex. For more information on indoor orchid cultivation, search indoor cultivation at rhs.org.uk forward slash advice. So what other events and activities and attractions are there to enjoy during the coming weeks? At RHS Garden Hyde Hall in Essex on the 23rd of April between 11am and 1pm, you can learn which plants like shady, moist and dry conditions. Our experts will show you a range of plants that will flourish in those awkward places as well as covering soil preparation. On the 25th of April at RHS Garden Wisley in Surrey, between 7am and 10.30am, join the local RSPB group as they show what resident and migrant bird life the gardens have during the spring. Everyone is welcome, especially newcomers to bird watching. At RHS Garden Rosemore in Devon on the 25th and 26th of April, between 10am and 4pm, the North Devon Bonsai Group will be combining horticulture and art and showing visitors how to grow, prune and shape bonsai trees. And finally, on the 27th of April at RHS Garden Harlow Car in North Yorkshire, James Moorstone, RHS team leader, will take visitors on a tour of some of the garden's lawns. James will give advice on mowing, weeding and feeding, and ways to keep lawns looking healthy, and tea and coffee are included. As always, full details of all these events and more are on the RHS website. Go to rhs.org.uk forward slash gardens what's on. That's all for now. We'll be back in a fortnight, but until then, remember to follow us on Twitter at the underscore RHS and like us on Facebook. For now, from me, Tony Dickerson and all the RHS Gardening Podcast team, goodbye. Goodbye.